0: this is concepts where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world phil shea and steve rose my name is phil shea i am writing for makeaskilljack.com and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com steve My name is Steve
1: Rose and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com where I write
0: about mental health and addiction. Today, we basically record this entire podcast episode. We're talking to you from the end of the podcast, but we're inserting it at the beginning because it is episode 15. Yeah, we did it. We're, we did it. we're better than most podcasters. We did it. Hurrah. Yeah, we did it. <laughs> <laughs> and this is
1: coming from the statistic that most podcasters only get to 14 episodes. Yeah,
0: we finally broke that. Now we can stop. This is it. Thanks. Uh, we're packing it in and we're going home. Taking our ball with us. You're officially better. Officially better. The That's end. all we ever needed. All right. Welcome to the concepts podcast. Welcome. Delayed. I, every single time I do these goddamn intros, I have to watch out for you just like interjecting that while I'm still talking. So now I give you a space. You you delay. All right. Uh, so today I'm, I'm trying, I'm taking a, a page out of Steve's book. I am not taking any notes and this is just off the top of my head. <laughs> It's a page out of my book. My prime strategy is to not prepare too much. To do nothing. Just roll out of bed and show up and say, I'm ready. And then criticize all of my efforts. <laughs> that's that's the, the go-to for Steve's, Steve's playbook. But now, now we, have a, we have an editor that is editing this. He's doing a decent job. We're keeping around. And uh, that saves up a lot of time for me, which is why... I started thinking about this concept, which I'm going to call time arbitrage. It may actually be something that is already considered under arbitrage, but I don't know that it is because the stuff I was looking into about arbitrage, specifically for commodities and services, I guess technically time could do that. What is arbitrage? Yeah, that's where I was going to go first. So arbitrage is buying something from a low value and then moving to a place where it's of higher value. So an example, the easiest one would be, you go to one market and they're selling apples for, let's say $1 an apple, really expensive apples. And then you go across town and they're selling apples for $2 an apple. So theoretically, if they would buy your apples, you could buy all the apples from the one seller for a dollar each, go over there and sell them for two apples. This is assuming that they they buy at those rates, that is, because chances are they're selling at a higher rate than they're purchasing. Basically, you're, you're taking the price differential from one area to, to another and making the profit off of that. So in this case, you'd get a dollar per apple in profit making you hundred percent profit per per shot. This happens a lot with tradable goods. Tradable goods are especially easy to do this with, which is why things like iPhones are not sold at lower rates in third world countries or in more impoverished countries, because if they were to do that, then people would buy up all the stock there and then resell it in other markets to make more money. So like if in oh. India it was selling for like a hundred bucks for like the newest iPhone, then they would immediately buy the entire stock and then ship them (laughs) somebody would then ship it all to the states and sell there the catch with this though is that by buying them up in such ready amounts from the lower area it ends up creating demand which makes the price go up and then by selling so much in the higher priced area it increases supply which makes the price go down so over time with big enough players doing this it will even out between the two markets okay
1: this reminds me of getting uh relatively inexpensive goods from china than reselling them here at a at an increased rate and then profiting off of the difference there is that the idea
0: i mean yeah that's if you're being super lazy like a lot of people were doing for say okay so there's fulfillment by amazon something i've had some misadventures in and that is where amazon holds your product for you you pay some sort of fee to keep them holding on to it and whatever else and they take a, a skim off the top But effectively, they hold on to it. And if somebody buys it from Amazon, they package it up, ship it out, and make it there within... It qualifies for Prime, so it can can be there faster. If you don't do that, then you have to basically do it all out of your own house. So you have to have the storage space. You have to physically pack it up. You have to bring it to the post office. They basically outsource all of that for you. So the lazier people would then take stuff... At the beginning, Amazon FBA was just like a wild, wild west a few years back where you could basically pick anything and then... Mm -hmm pump a lot of sales by dropping the, the the price really, really low. And then suddenly you'd be at the top of the search list. If anybody searched for, say, I think one of the top ones was yoga mats. The problem though, as time went on is that this became more and more competitive. Like I was saying with getting a glut of supply, it drove the prices down because there's so many people there. And with something like a yoga mat, it's really difficult to differentiate. Like, what are you going to throw in or how are you going to improve a yoga mat to make you set yourself apart from the competition? And when it comes down to that, then it's either price, which people assume cheaper things are worse. So it's not always mm-hmm. the best call or they go by recognition of a brand. So if they recognize the brand, then they'll choose that. So that both of those for small time people, it's difficult to compete on because either you're competing on price with factories or you're competing with the big names that everyone knows. And both those are difficult. So that's how that, that Wild West kind of was tamed a bit, I guess, for the big guys. Interesting.
1: So that's where that's kind of a price arbitrage example there. And we we talk about arbitrage quite a bit with regards to commodities, Mm -hmm. but in terms of time, we don't really think about it in the same way as commodities often.
0: No. And I think that's because most people don't really, well, I mean, it's changing now. I think millennials are more entrepreneurial than previous generations, possibly out of necessity, probably out of necessity. And we, have to come out to like the whole internalized capitalism thing with the commoditize our time as much as possible. So mm-hmm. in doing that, I think people don't often realize or factor in how much their time costs because mm-hmm. like you and I have, have spoken about this a little bit about say private practice versus getting in with a, an agency to get clients for counseling. You want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. You're the uh,
0: cheating. The cheating.
1: Well, a lot of counselors work within uh, agencies that pay very little And so you're, you're taking quite a few clients uh, and not making a whole lot. And and it leads to a lot of burnout, but jumping out of the standard kind of progression within an agency, uh, you could kind of sidestep that whole promotion situation and have a private practice, which is riskier, but you can actually set the value of your time directly. You have direct control over that. It's not an employer deciding, okay, this year you get a 2% raise Good job. And then you have to wait 10 years to, to make anything decent.
0: This is. Wait, hold on, though. A 2% raise is lower than inflation. So you're actually losing money every year. Yeah. Yeah. That, that can
1: happen. So it, it's really taking back control over your time and, and the price of your time. And you can set that price and you can control exactly how many people you want to see based on what your burnout level is. Some people can see more than others. And that's, in a way, time arbitrage, is it not? Mm,
0: no, I, I mean, kind of, yes. That's why I'm saying. Like, arbitrage may encompass this. But we were talking about a service arbitrage. I would ah, say services. Service. You're taking, okay. Yeah. So you're taking services from a place where you're being paid less to a place where you're being paid more. So, like, for instance, mm-hmm. I did that with with my writing and English skills, right? So because I have those skills, I was able to go to China. Because here, it's like people laugh at you and think it's just a waste of any investment at all. Why why are you writing? Ugh, go get a real job. But then I went to the state <laughs> and I went to China. It was like who are these people are you talking to? They sound pretty rude. Uh yeah, because there's a lot of people who seem to think that if you can't find a job, that's on you for studying something that was useless. And all things useless. that are not STEM are useless. You should just learn to code. Even though, like apparently, coding it's like a six percent chance of getting hired. Mm. So it's like you're rolling a 20-sided dice, as a DD player would recognize. So that's, that's not great. You have to roll a 20 just to get a job, but I guess you can keep trying. And yeah, so basically, again, that's just ignoring how economics works, because like suppose we all learn how to code. Well, then they're going to have a glut of people who are able to code, which means those jobs will be raced to the bottom for for pay because everyone's going to desperately want a job. And so then they are either going to be massive unemployment or low wages, which is kind of what we're currently at with a lot of markets currently.
1: Yes. So in a way, we both went into areas that you're not going to see a ton of people racing into them, let's just say, Mm -hmm. which in a way, it makes it harder to find employment, but allows us to be more unique and creative to do service arbitrage. Is that something you agree with?
0: Yeah, I guess. I think it just requires you to be more creative because- there's yeah. one video I was watching about he was arguing that we only expect beautiful people to be talented, which I guess is to some degree. Like he was talking about Susan Boyle, the singer, not being expected to be good. And then even after she was shown to be good, people were like, wow, why should why would we expect her to be any good? Look, look, look at her. Well, like she's not conventionally attractive. So that's yeah. what he was arguing. But he was arguing about this one. I think this one classical violinist who a lot of violin, like professional classical violinists don't get paid that well necessarily and it's very very competitive because there's not that many jobs and it's really really high skill so it's it's very cutthroat and they were not liking this woman because she is not as good as many people but she's making a lot more and he was arguing it was because she was beautiful but honestly it seemed more to me that yeah she was she was easily more attractive than a lot of people but what she did was she niched down and she went for video game music basically and did a lot of interesting performance videos and stuff to do around with that. So she chose to niche down in a very competitive field or as we uh-huh. kind of have done, we've combined with other skills as Scott Adams recommends and I think we talked yeah. about this in like one of the first two episodes, Fox and the Hedgehog. Yeah, we chose areas to combine with our our skills to to help us. So like she put in more marketing as well as choosing a a less competitive area that is highly desired by the the fans. So this is an example of service arbitrage. That is kind of more like, I guess I'm just, I'm kind of free forming this. Like I said, I don't really have (laughs) a list in front of me or anything at this time. So I should actually directly address time arbitrage. So what I'm talking about for time arbitrage is, for example, this podcast. So I was editing this podcast and for somebody who's focused and knows what they're doing, I think it's supposed to be between For one hour of recording, it's like two to four hours of editing, which is a lot. And I was doing, I think, five or six hours a week. It took me quite a bit, and it was not fun. It was useful because I could hear the mannerisms that you and I both have, and I have pointed them out to you. And I could work on my own speech because of that. But I'm not sure it's it's worth the time. So what I realized was I'm. I guess it's still service arbitrage technically somewhat, but it's because it's my own efforts that I don't really consider it a service. I'm doing it for myself. So what I realized was like by taking that six hours and finding somebody to edit the podcast, then I could buy back those, t- those hours for that amount of time. So like, let's, let's look at, say the States right now, the States well, a little while ago was complaining about how people were choosing to get $300 a week on government subsidies versus taking a I think it was $11 an hour job full time. This is assuming that $11 is at a full time rate, so 40 hours a week. And I did the math, I think it was an extra $120. If you were to work full time 40 hours every week for four weeks, versus like, I think it was like 1320 for working or 1200 for taking subsidies. So people are blaming the poor for not taking jobs, calling them lazy. But if you think about it, you're getting $120 extra dollars for 120 hours of work. So you're getting an extra one dollar per hour of labor you actually put in, or you could just forego that extra money and not take the work and get all the time back, right? So likewise yeah. with this editing thing, I can find somebody, how much is it gonna cost me per hour to buy back my time? So in this case, this guy I found, I think it was like 40-ish dollars Canadian. So for me, that was very much worth it because it's only like I guess. I don't know. I'm not going to do the mental math, but it's really cheap. So like 40 bucks for six hours of leisure. If I so choose, that sounds like a great deal. Yeah. So how much is that per hour? Uh, that's I just said, I don't want to do the mental math and you're going to force me to do it. So I think no, it was like 42 I mean, divided by six. It should be easy enough. I should seven. Yeah. I knew it was going to be a rounder number and I was like, I'm going to screw this up. So uh, yeah, seven. So $7 an hour and you are able to make how much per hour, relatively speaking, writing. It depends because like you only get so many hours of writing per day, but it would take so much time and energy because like, again, you have to also consider factor in how much energy you have. So that's why like dead end jobs are so bad because you come home like when I was working the, the restaurant cycle. It's a pretty vicious cycle because I am not a early morning person most of the time. And this lifestyle definitely pushes you to be more night like because most people want to wine and dine at night. So if you're in the restaurant cycle, you're probably very familiar with this. You wake up late. You putter around, do some basic chores and stuff, feed yourself. Then you go to work in the afternoon and then you work basically until close or close to close or at least late evening. So like eight to 10 at least. And then you come home and you're like, well, I'm tired from doing all that work and I don't want to just do work until I go to bed. So I'm not going to do like work on my own stuff. I'm just going to relax for a bit. And then you go to sleep, repeat the cycle. And so that's why I think energy is what I'm, I'm pointing out here is. That it's, it's very important to protect your energy. So in this case, I can only write for like two hours if I'm two or three hours if I'm focused and energized. And so in that time, I guess I could probably make substantially more multiple times more than I would at least probably at least 10 times as much as that. So like 70 bucks an hour, I could probably pump out. But again, it's only for a few hours yeah. because it you kind of run out of steam and get less productive as time goes on. Yeah, I really like this idea of time
1: arbitrage where... If you as a freelance person or me as a counselor can make a certain amount per hour that exceeds the amount uh, that we would pay somebody to outsource work that we would have to do, then you have a net profit just by arbitraging that that time and the difference in how much you can make versus how much you can pay someone for to do something.
0: Exactly. A general rule for entrepreneurship is because a lot of people, it's their baby. They're going to do a lot better at time and effort than somebody Mm -hmm. they're paying, of course. So, like, I I care more about how we sound on this than the editor is going to care. However, if they can do it roughly 80% as well as you can, if not better, then you should definitely outsource it. Because you're going to have to accept some loss that somebody else is doing it. But at the same time, you also have greater skills and can focus your times more on more important things. Right like I would have to yes. sacrifice doing profit generating activities. So like something that would help me advance my goals or whatever work I need to advance my goals and my other projects. And I think this leads us to internalized capitalism because I don't want it to seem like I'm saying that we must maximize profit as much as possible. Cause yeah. on top of that is like you're buying back your time this past week. I basically took like a vacation because I realized I could get more time. And I realized that financially I wasn't as screwed as I thought I was. Supposing my, my debts get paid <laughs> to me. That is, but yes. If all that comes through, then I I can just relax because I think that most of us don't have enough time for breathing. So if you can maximize your productivity in a way by outsourcing this way, then you can use that time in whatever way you want. So by productivity, I mean more efficiency, I should say. If you can spend one hour getting what used to take you six hours to get done, then you effectively get five extra hours in your life, which is a finite resource. So buying back your time is, is worth it. Yeah. So you could
1: buy back your time for profit or you can buy back your time for, for leisure. It doesn't have to just be a profit situation.
0: Yeah. And I I also still maintain that I think work like, okay. So one of the criticisms of Ikigai, we've briefly touched on that before. I'm just going to briefly recap that because I realized by editing the last one, we reference other episodes, but people may not have watched those episodes. So exactly. I noticed that too. Yeah. So it's a combination of what you love, what the world needs, what you can be paid for, and what you are good at. It's a combination of these four things. But somebody was criticizing that, saying that it's assuming that people want to work and that work is an essential part of life. And I think, honestly, I think that it depends on how you define work, because again, anti-work seems to think that having a dream job is brainwashing. They love that. I keep seeing that same goddamn message again and again. I don't dream of having a job. I dream of not working. And it's like, okay, <laughs> so what are you doing? Just sitting there consuming, like doing any sort of production for yourself. Art is work. Cleaning or cooking yeah. is work. Caring for people is work. These all count as work. They're productive measures. And these are the things that make life more meaningful. Like if you make a yeah. ton of cheesecakes and then go around to six people and give them to them, that's still work. So I think those things are, are worth pursuing not just no. like wage slavery, but it's not just what work is. Yes. Yeah, so a narrow definition of work as kind of the, the standard
1: institutional idea, but work could be very freelance. It could be very fun. And so you can't just get rid of
0: it. Well, work is kind of, it's one of the things that makes life meaningful. If you're doing nothing and you're producing nothing, then you're gonna probably end up depressed and seek comfort in substances, or purchasing, or whatever mm-hmm. other destructive behaviors: sex, buying stuff, drugs, gambling, rock and, things like rock and roll. Mm, no, because that requires work. <laughs> unless you're just going to dance. <laughs> but I'm thinking more, or I guess extreme sports. But I'm just thinking like the idle rich. There's a book that I think we've discussed a little bit. But not on the podcast. Was it called uh, "Fables of Fortune"? What the rich have that you don't want, and it talked about how these people's lives are often ruined by financial success. Because it's kind of a strange thing. Like going back to one of our other episodes uh, was it wasn't a lot of unintended consequences. It was the curse or the. Do you remember what it was called? Where like if one group does really well, it can actually screw them. It's not the endowment effect, whatever. It's basically when one group does particularly well, it can actually screw the whole system and end up hurting that group as well. It seems like it happens with people financially as well, because there's in that book, it talked about the book is written by a lawyer. I should probably say this first. He's written by a lawyer who deals with the hyper rich, the mega rich. So we're talking like hundreds of millions into up and his misadventures with dealing with them because they're going to be larger personalities and a lot more drama to do with those people because of all the wealth, which, again, that comes as one of the curses that comes with it. So wealth is it's a mixed bag for sure. If you don't know what you're doing, then you can easily destroy yourself because I think you've seen this in your addictions fields, probably that their resources, their limitation of resources can probably actually save their life sometimes. Oh, huge in gambling addiction. Really? Why? I would think more with drugs because like you can buy enough drugs to kill yourself by accident. Well,
1: in, in every addiction, but particularly gambling addiction, money is in a sense the drug in a way. Having money is like having drugs. So then you can, because you have money, you can go and you can gamble it away? Yes, exactly. So if you have a whole bunch of excess funds sitting in a bank account, that's like having a, a, a liquor cabinet or a stash of drugs. And there might be a lock on it, but you can still get to it.
0: I mean, okay. The only reason I'm, I'm balking at this is because... To me, it seems like they would just up the stakes, up the ante. And by doing that, it doesn't really matter how much money you have. You've a hundred bucks or hundred million bucks. If you're mm-hmm. like, if you have a hundred bucks, you could bet a dollar a time. But if you have a million bucks, you could bet a million a t- or sorry, a hundred million bucks, exactly. you could bet a million a time. So you're still playing the same amount. So I'm not sure that like having increased wealth will make the situation that much worse because it'll just up the stakes. Well, it makes it worse by upping the stakes. I mean, you either way, you end up at zero. So but what I'm saying is it doesn't make it worse. You lose more. Yes. But like the end outcome, you're still at, at whatever amount of debt, I guess maybe you could get even further into debt because you had so much to start with. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, having playing with higher numbers is always way more dangerous than if you only had a dollar and nobody will give you credit versus if you have tons of money and now you're able to get into that amount of
0: debt. Right. Yeah. You can leverage it. It actually reminds me of a, uh, I was watching this video on, how the economy works, like very, very basic, how the economy works. And it's an emergent property. Basically the entire economy is just a bunch of transactions just on mass. So it's a very simple thing. I give you money or credit and you give me whatever goods you're selling or services. And in a huge scale, this ends up driving the economy forward. So the more, the more transactions there are, the more the economy will grow, which is why it's like, I don't know. It's such a basic thing. And that's, he was talking about how that affects, interest rates and debt rates and how much debt you're willing to take out because if interest rates are high, you're not going to take out too much. I'm going to link this because it's a very interesting take. And it also kind of seems to debunk the idea that raising minimum wage is going to screw the economy because minimum wage or wages are not one of the things that greatly affect the rate of inflation or the rate of interest rates or the economy as a whole. It's more to do with interest rates and like large purchases. So it also kind of debunks the idea of trickle down economics, because I mean, trickle down economics, they assume that they're going to make a lot of jobs and cause a lot of people to earn more money ultimately. But it seems that instead it just pools at to the top. Right. And they just invested and offshore it and do their own kind of arbitrage because mm-hmm. arbitrage can also be done with currencies, which I had done when I was living in in Southeast Asia. I would be paid in U.S. dollars like buying them when they're low. Uh, mm, sort of. It's more I was earning U.S. dollars and I was living in Thai bot or Chinese U.N. And oh, yeah. By doing that, some things, yeah, there'll be approximately the same amount like tech. But other things like food or local costs are much, much lower. So like living costs or anything that somebody can do, because they're talking about how services are actually very difficult to arbitrage, because say a barber in India will only charge maybe a dollar for a haircut and a head massage. But in his his skills are probably just as good as somebody here. But he can't come here unless he fits some very strict requirements because they're, they're trying to stop the decrease in, in pay for, for services here. So that that is very oh difficult to do unless it's a very skilled thing that we won't let them in. And a lot of countries act like this for that reason. They don't want the average income for services to drop precipitously because they know it just cause a lot of poverty in, in these countries. Like imagine if oh. people from third world countries flooded over here and all offered equally skilled um, services, they're going to charge way less because they're used to making even less. They'll still be making more than they were back in their home country. But by doing that, it's going to flood the market and cause all people who are doing those services to, to suddenly be making poverty-level amounts if they weren't already. Wow. Never thought of it that way. Yeah. So, like, the whole idea that we, we should have no borders and borders are violence and blah, 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 it seems to be kind of lost. I mean, I understand the inclination. Like, people need help, and we should help people who need help. But it's like saving a drowning man when you don't know what you're doing. It's going to kill you both, right?
1: Yeah, that's actually one of the rules in lifeguarding, which... I used to be a lifeguard is the first thing you do when you're approaching someone who's drowning is you put your foot up in front of you and you get ready to kick them away if they attack you because you have to be able to save yourself. If you're going to be any use to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Oxygen masks, that whole thing in airplanes, help yourself before you help others. Right. But yeah, I guess, I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of meandering around with like business topics. Cause I was watching some online, uh, another form of arbitrage Like I said, was like currencies. Yeah, you can buy at different times. Like my my dad likes to do that with the U.S. dollar.
1: Yeah, buy it when it's low, sell when it's high.
0: Yeah, and that's just another form of investment, essentially. But yeah, Yeah. you can go to other countries and say, okay, well, like labor is internationalized to some degree now. Like virtual assistants, if I were to hire one, I'd probably hire one in probably the Philippines because they have a history of speaking good English and their culture is very good for whatever reason for helping in this way. Apparently it's a leading country for that. So like if you're a Canadian virtual assistant, you would have to charge more for living costs, but you have to be very specialized to do it because otherwise they're going to source it to somebody in another country. That's basically why a lot of the call centers are set in India and why I think uh, Americans can can be pissed off about that because they want those jobs to be in this, in the country. But Again, it's a lot of strange attitudes are mixed up with these. Another one that people were talking about was cryptocurrency arbitrage, which is essentially the same thing as currency.
1: Oh, that's been huge recently. Yeah. People are being millionaires out of this.
0: Yeah. And same with the GameStop thing. But I think survivorship bias, I think, has gone rampant in anything to do with finance. That's usually how it goes. We were talking about that with the other episode. I don't remember which episode that was. Maybe like eight. but. Yeah, they have a lot of survivorship bias going on with that stuff. Because you'll hear of one guy that made like millions of dollars, but then there will be others that lost everything because they chose they timed it wrong or they they stupidly sold everything. One actually way that was... Okay, so people think arbitrage is basically zero risk investments is what they kind of call it, which is obviously it's not. So like one way that people for Amazon FBA, this is why I was thinking about this, how they would start, that is how they would get their capital, is they start by going to Walmart. There are certain apps apparently that you can download to check for, I think they're called secret sales where they're not listed as a sale, but they're actually selling at a, at a better rate than what's stickered on, on the shelves for whatever reason. And by doing that, you can find stuff that's going to be cheaper than it's listed. And then you can go online and you can sell it for the difference. So you can market up a little bit. You also get the extra profit from, from the sale. So like the guy was getting like 30% profit for each item, which for those who are not into investing and in stuff like that, I think it's, it's a divide. I think it's 72 by the the interest rate to figure out how many cycles it'll take to to double your money. So for example, if you're getting 10% returns per year on your investments, then it'll take you 7.2 years to double your money. But for this guy, if he's selling the same goods again and again, he's getting 30% profit, then that's like two point something like, so let's say 2.5, 2.5 sales, he doubles his money for how much he invested in one. So by continually doing this, you can make quite a bit of money and you don't need to start out with too much because it's again, you, you work by percentages. It seems small, like it's like $3 profit each. But if you start with very little and you have almost nothing, you can also do this. However, you need to have liquid cash up front to some degree. It's better if you can send more stuff to Amazon because they won't screw you as much. There's some tricks for shipping and you probably need a car because you need to go to all these stores, buy all the stuff bring it all back home, package it up. And send it away and then it'll be taken care of for oh. you. Yeah, it's quite a bit of work. However, it gets you a lot of capital fairly quickly. He spent in the video I watched. Actually, I was skeptical of him at first, but getting into it, he spent, I think it was like 1100 bucks. And how much do you think he made off of that? I don't know. 1200 What? You think he made more than the amount he invested? I don't know. No. <laughs> you think he made a 100% profit on that? No, no. That's not usual. That's <laughs> way too much. He made 700 bucks, 750. So he made a good percentage, but not more than he invested. But yeah, you can. The thing is, like, you would think this would go down. But the thing is, these sales will continually pop up for random items. And so you're not entirely invested in one thing. You're going to have to be diversified to a good degree. And not that many people are doing this because they think either it's a scam or it's too much work or blah, 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 blah. But if you have, so he made $700, he made $700 from a day's like a few hours work in a day. Again, he had a car though, oh. and he had like, he had to do a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And he had to have some basic equipment, but like your startup costs would probably be like a hundred bucks. It's only a few hours.
1: Yeah. $700 in a few hours. Pretty good.
0: Well, okay. It's not instantaneous though, either though. And that's another thing that people will be ter- deterred by. Cause like, if you make a bad call, you, you buy something that doesn't sell, you can sell it for probably below what you paid and take a, a small loss. But at least you'll learn a lesson. You can see what sells and what doesn't. So, like, Lego probably sells for a good amount, especially if you can get it on sale. Because Lego is pretty much perennially popular. Yeah. But he he sells it to them. So, he sends it to Amazon. And then you have to wait for it to sell. And then you get paid back once, I think, per month, if I remember correctly. So, he put in... He has $1,100 tied up. But he's going to get, I think, about $1,850 back in about a month's time, maybe if it sells at a right rate. So, you need... Once you get this going, it's still a fair bit of work. It's like a job. But like I said, people start with this to get some startup capital to invest in whatever project they're going for. And then they will stop doing it because it's it's more work than they want. Ultimately, the goal for everyone in yeah. this space is passive income. You don't want to have to do anything at all, pretty much. Right.
1: Dealing with all these products and shipping everything every day, even though
0: 700 for a couple hours is pretty good. It's very good, especially since like he's, I mean, some people only make like two or $3,000 uh, a month, right? Or less. So if they're making 700 bucks in an afternoon and all he has to do is sit around and eat Cheetos for the rest of the time, that sounds pretty goddamn worth it to me. Cheetos.
1: <laughs> this reminds me of something Gary V talks about a lot. It's garage
0: sailing. Oh, yeah. Where he goes and buys from garage sales.
1: Yeah. When he's asked the question of how do I start? I have no startup capital. I have no money. I want to be able to invest in Facebook ads, but I don't have the capital. Yep. His number one answer is
0: go to garage sales, sell it on Kijiji. Yeah. That's, that's, he's doing the same thing. That's arbitrage because those people don't know what it's worth. And they can, (laughs) they can go online and sell it. When I said garage selling, I I can imagine people would be like, what
1: have a big garage sale? (laughs) No, this is going to other garage sales and then reselling the stuff at higher price.
0: Well, apparently a good time to do that is after after the university year ends because people just dump a bunch of stuff and they end up selling it. Yeah. When I was working in the Supportive Housing Project, one of the guys that was living there, um, this, the, the project helped people who were homeless. And I guess he, he was like the merchant of the building because he would have his own little... His apartment was basically a store. He <laughs> would sell chocolate bars and uh, pop and... Other things to the people. but he, would, he was
1: a resident, but the de facto merchant, I guess you can say.
0: Yeah, of the legal goods. Because there was also like a less legal aspect of it mm. secretly going on, of course. But he would go around after students moved out because it was a university town with two universities and one college. So a lot of pickings. And he would go around to the on garbage day and find all the stuff that he could and bring it back and sell it. I even did that one time. I found a pair of skis that was perfectly fine and sold it for 50 bucks. So that was a, that was a pretty good, pretty good time. But yeah, that's it's actually effectively the same thing. You're finding something that's valued at lower than it's worth, or at least lower than you can sell it for if you have a, a captive market and get that to work. So for instance, like my, my Dungeons and Dragons website is aiming to be something like that as well, because there are resources online for people who want to run the game. There's tons of people in a huge community that sell their stuff for dirt cheap. It's like five bucks or less for something that took them probably a lot of hours to tweak and balance and make work well with the system. And that's way undervalued. Frankly, I think they're hoping to get a lot of sales, but they're probably only getting one or two. And so what I'm hoping to do with this platform is because you get to a certain level of credibility. People like you, people trust you more. You can sell for for what it's actually worth. And so I can, I can help them out by doing that.
1: Right. So it's like a D and D version of garage sailing.
0: Sort of that. Not really, because I'm still giving them uh, what I would hope to do is like they're selling a say for five bucks. But if I think on my website, I can sell it for maybe, let's say, 20 bucks a pop in a higher rate of sales. If that's the case, then I could say, OK, give me 25 percent and then i will sell it on the website, which people might think is a, like I'm taking advantage. because I didn't actually do anything except for building the platform. Oh, but they're offering value. Yeah, because they're going to make three times as much and every sale will make them be equal to three times on that one. And potentially they could sell even more per day even. And if that's the case, then they're going to make a shit ton more money and we both benefit. So I think the problem with people's business sense sometimes is that they feel that taking anything that they didn't make themselves is kind of violating the contract. Like you're, you're just taking advantage, earning money off of somebody else's back. But the thing is, if you're helping them make more money than they would without you, then you're both benefiting. You shouldn't be expected to do these things for free. Like, for instance, when I was doing the um, editing business in China, I would try to get people to edit for me. And so I have to obviously I don't want it to be not worth my time because it's still a lot of effort and energy for me to do. And I know they're doing the bulk of the work. I still have to check all of their work. And I also had to foster a relationship with the, the customer and I define the customer's. So a lot of that was unseen by the editors, and all they know is that they're getting papers and they're they're doing the the most of the labor and they think that they deserve all the money that's being paid. I had one friend I tried to help out because she was moving back to the States, her and her husband. And I said, I like, I offered them to edit for me. And I said, typically I I pay X amount per thousand words, but I even told her to negotiate with me, which is really not smart if you're wanting to get a good deal. So I wasn't trying to screw them at all. I'm like, I'm open to negotiation. And then she wouldn't negotiate. She said she felt uncomfortable with negotiating and ultimately said that she felt that I should just give her direct contact to my customer because that's, that would be more fair because they should get a hundred percent of the profit from what they, what work they put in. What do you think about this? Wow. Well, it's inviting someone to just take over your
1: business if you start doing that.
0: Yeah, I'm effectively shooting myself in the head. Like, why the hell would I do that? (laughs) Because it's just that's just such bad business sense. You should want the people you work with to do well and to do better because they're working with you. Because if you do that consistently, you're building allies everywhere because they'll constantly be like, that guy, that guy makes me money. And yeah, he also takes a little bit from it. But we both end up earning more money and we're both more prosperous Mm -hmm. for doing so. And so this is what we kind of have to think. We don't want to, okay, a problem with, I noticed with the, the people I worked with that were homeless or people that are in dire straits, they tend to try to extract as much value out of something as they can. Not always, obviously, but it's like you say, the poor don't get fed or the hungry don't get fed. That's it.
1: Well, the hungry don't get fed is a, is kind of a psychological idea that when you see someone who's really struggling, it's almost like there's an aversion that that people have to that. Hmm. And it's kind of like, stay away. Versus when we see someone who's doing really well, we we kind of get attracted to that because we want to be associated with the prosperity. So the people that need the help the most are the least likely to get it.
0: It's the Matthew principle. To those who have more will be given to those who don't have whatever they have will be taken away. Yeah, that's, that's kind of how it works. But a lot of it seems to be attitude based because for instance, like my dad, he, he does some services installing satellites. And with that, he was charging really, really low. He was aiming for like the, the, it was trying to, I guess, help the community, but the less he charged, the more people expect him to do and the more they would complain and the less promptly they would pay. So sometimes you just have to price yourself up because you'll get less headaches by doing so. He was thinking that nobody would buy if he charged more, which is again, undervaluing his service because people still wanted it. But I guess maybe that particular service, richer people may not want, I don't know. But I I just noticed that when I did raise my rates, I actually had less headaches and more profit. Yeah,
1: that's huge in a lot of industries where raising your rates makes you more profitable, not because the obvious reason you're raising your rates, but because you're spending less time focusing on the unproductive, busy work of the lower end of your customers.
0: Yeah. And this also ties into the 80-20 rule because 80% of your profits will come from 20% of your customers. So most of your money will come from a small chunk and likewise 80% of your headaches will come from 20% of your customers. So generally there's a whole book on this. It's such a simple idea. I can't believe they wrote a whole book called the The pumpkin principle, but it's just this 80, 20 rule in disguise. He basically suggests that you take the 20% that's profitable and doesn't give you headaches, profile them and try to multiply them as much as possible. And then find the 20% that gives you headaches, fire them. Do not do business with them unless you absolutely must to survive But the thing is a lot of the time, a lot of businesses think they need their, their headache, their headache customers, but they don't. And they keep wasting time and not expanding because it's, again, it's a time arbitrage. They're wasting time and energy, making these idiots happy when they could be spending that time and energy, taking a slight hit in the profits to find more of the good customers and then ultimately multiply their income and not their work. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And putting that attention on the, the valued customers that, uh, really appreciate it. So you're able to do higher quality work. And therefore, again, uh, it's kind of a cycle of attracting even higher quality customer.
0: Yeah, it's a a virtuous cycle you want to buy into. Um, I think also one of the things that stops people from doing these things is they expect them to be way more expensive than they are. And this is what I keep cajoling you about with your website and stuff. Hiring an expert, even if it's like $200, supposing you're doing well, or if you can afford it, that is it could if your business is doing OK to, to swallow that cost, it's much more worth it than having to figure out and fumble around and, and not actually do things well, because they could end up making the, making you like a good accountant, making you like a thousand percent on what you paid them or more, depending on how long the time frame is. So, like, for instance, the editor we, of the podcast, we talked about that and I thought it was going to be too expensive. So I realized I was falling to the same trap that I catch you with being like, no, 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 it's way too much. I can't afford it. But unless we actually look into these things, we don't actually know how much they cost. And so by looking into the editor one, I was like, I can get somebody to do this for under 50 bucks. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to do that. Why not? So I think when you're considering these things, think about what sort of things you can outsource and consider how much you think it costs and then actually look into it. Fiverr, Upwork, I think on uh, a freelancer.com, that one, I think you need to have a membership to pay to do that. But all these things allow you to have access to people, again, who are trying to do skill arbitrage. It's cheaper Skillard, because yeah. they're anywhere in the world and you can get their help because of that. The editor, by the in- way, is from Ireland.
1: Oh, oh, shout, shout out to the editor who is also listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. Keep it up. <laughs> in terms of the time arbitrage, a big one that I'm really looking forward to after COVID cleaning is hiring out cleaning.
0: Oh, Yeah. You like you doing your lawn oh. care. The thing is, I think, OK, if you enjoy the thing, you don't need to eliminate it like you enjoy cutting your lawn.
1: Yeah, I think I would eventually it gets old sometimes. But yeah,
0: I think you could do like I don't know how many times you cut your your cut your lawn, but you can maybe do every other one or something like that. It depends yeah. on how much you actually enjoy things. Like if you enjoy cooking, don't hire out a chef just because no. you want to save the time
1: that's internalized capitalism that's like yes. i enjoy cooking but oh i have to start working more and that's i
0: can make more money if i don't cook no this
1: is like i really don't like cleaning that often like maybe just here and there tidying up but if i can save a couple hours a day and then i can spend those couple hours making a much higher rate taking clients or doing work with the website then it's well worth the time, the, the, the price for the
0: time. Well, alternatively, I think it's been shown that like resting more frequently ends up making you more productive when you're actually working. So you could end up taking that time to just relax and spend time with your daughter or reading a book or whatever you find relaxing going for a drive that too. Yeah. So I think honestly there was this trend, I think it was a, was this Scandinavian country or was it, I think it was Belgium. I don't remember exactly which country. But they have a prime minister who's 36, a 36 year old female prime minister, which is really, really young. And she was pushing for a four day a week, six hour work week to, to experiment with that. And I know New Zealand, I think in Australia, one of the two, I think it was New Zealand, was experimenting with a bunch of firms, not the government, but some firms were experimenting with a four day work week as well. And it seems that their productivity actually does go up in these cases. But this is actually also it's it's all complicated because it ties into like bosses needing to feel important and having to have butts in seats. Like after the pandemic, if your job makes you go back to the office and it's not something that's essential, then you're working for a dying company. That's really stupid because they're paying a ton of overhead, especially in prime (laughs) real estate for basically no reason. If they want to do meetings, they can do a meeting once a week or once a month or whatever. Well, for one, they could do it over zoom now, but for two, I know there's yeah. some value lost by not being in person. They can rent workspaces. There are offices that you can rent for on an hourly basis. And so like anybody that is working at these big companies that are really slow and sluggish and you see an opportunity and you have a bunch of clients at your disposal, well, you might want to set up shop to compete with them because they seem to not really want to keep up with the times.
1: Yes. That is of course, unless your, your company actually needs to do business in person So if they're they're needlessly having you sit in a chair with a cubicle and it doesn't really make sense, it's not a necessary thing. It's really it's showing that they are a dinosaur in some sense.
0: Yeah, but I guess that's pretty much all I had to say on this. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Nope.
1: I think arbitraging commodities, services, time, I think that all makes sense. And oh, yeah, I wanted to add. Another thing Gary V talks about is attention arbitrage. Have you ever heard him say that word?
0: I don't really watch him very much. He's a bit too much in the hustle culture for me. Well, he he loves the hustle. And that's his oh, thing. He, he does. So, and
1: he says if you don't love the hustle, then that's that's okay too. But uh, the attention arbitrage is really the idea of uh, using the social media platforms that are trending right now to to uh, capitalize on the attention. Uh, whereas the old companies are using things like television ads, billboards. Oh, yeah. Uh, and up and coming and companies are actually adapting to where the attention actually is going. Where is the attention going? Onto the cellular device. Where on the cellular device? Facebook, Instagram,
0: mm, I'm not sure TikTok. About Facebook is like a legacy one, I think. Now it's starting to be. There are other ones that are competing to get them. It's still growing, but it's like. Yeah, it's one that people have animosity towards and are not, not liking it. So it seems like it could be potentially on the decline. It's hard to say, honestly, but like there are other ones that pop up that people sometimes jump to like Snapchat, for instance, more popular, the younger generations, TikTok also from like our generation down. Yeah. Uh, so like, yeah, you could you could try to jump on those, although personally, I'm never going to install a TikTok. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's
1: kind of like the arbitrage of is, is if your business is doing in person stuff unnecessarily. You can also ask, is my business or company running television ads? And that's a red flag as well.
0: <laughs> that's kind yeah. of a similar red flag. So like, we're talking, I guess, to multiple people.
1: <laughs> if you're sitting in a cubicle and your company is running television ads, might be a sign to run away because in, in, what, 10, 20 years, that will be a dinosaur. Unless they adapt, of course, but if they choose not to adapt Well, it to- depends
0: because like stockholdership stockholders stock stakeholder. OK, so like the WEF, the World Economic Forum, is trying to push this whole mm-hmm. stakeholdership and saying it's different than stockholdership. Same goddamn thing. Basically, there's such a little there's mincing words for the sake of their own agenda, which who knows exactly what that is. So basically, if they're if they're a publicly traded company, then their interests are always going to be short term for the most part, because they need to keep making returns to have their investors happy. If they don't, then they'll be voted off the board. Most likely, if it's, supposing it's a board structure, which it usually is. Because you're not making short-term returns, the investors aren't going to be happy and they don't really care about long-term returns. The most typical example of this is Kodak. Yes. Kodak did not want to invest in the digital cameras because they didn't want to cannibalize their their market for the Kodak camera, the whole take a picture and it prints out immediately, right? And I was just exactly thinking of Kodak
1: when I was talking about uh, dinosaur companies that don't adjust.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a lot, though, because they just they they seem to think that if they don't invest in it, then it just won't change. But they're killing their golden goose by not feeding it. Essentially, they need to keep up with the trends and keep investing in R&D. But R&D costs money. And again, it won't pay out necessarily for a while. So if you want to keep making profits year over year and your sales are stagnated, then you just cut on R&D. Hey, look, we got more money sitting around more profit. Right. Cause we didn't have to spend yeah. on R and D, but that's short-term thinking. It's really, really stupid. Yeah.
1: Yeah, You're cutting your leg off. It's yeah. You're, you're operating a handicap for, for the future. And you could look at blockbuster too, as a huge example of this blockbuster literally could have been Netflix. Like we could all, instead of having a Netflix platform, we would all be logging into our blockbuster platforms and, and watching our or streaming, our television shows off of the blockbuster app
0: and all of that. Like that really could have been the reality right now. It could have been. Yeah. That they had chosen to be smarter. Yeah. But again, they didn't want to. And that's the problem is they get comfortable. And like companies are often like that, which is why it's kind of like people too. like the changing of the guard. Societal progress happens generation by generation. Same with businesses. That generation is a certain expression of memetic ideas. Like, so business memes is technically what they are because they're the genetics of ideas And they are one expression of that. But then it's now as the environment changes, it's not fit anymore and will crumble and die and be dismantled by its its next generation that was spawned from the ideas that they got from that model, as well as like incorporating new technology, of course.
1: Mm.
0: Anyway, I'm going to wrap this up. I think it would be at least interesting if you don't understand business to to read some business books. I, again, can't can't recommend enough Richard Koch's 8020 principle because it's a ton of science and business put together, but. I think a lot of people who are more idealistic don't like to think about business. They like to think that business is more corrupt or something they don't like and capitalism bad. But the thing is, these tools still work They're, they're even outside of capitalist s- systems, because like in the past, before capitalism was a, a thing, I mean, I guess you could argue it was always there. But markets always exist. We will always have markets. We're always going to buy and sell things and selling and in, in studying how these things work to your advantage can allow you to do little neat tricks where you live in a place that's really cheap. Like for instance, people in Toronto, the the real estate's really expensive here. They sell here, they retire way earlier than they thought because they go and buy land in a small town that has basically the same quality of living, but much, much cheaper like our hometown. So my hometown, I guess. So yes, in this way, I think getting creative and thinking about how you can leverage these things to buy back the freedom that you were dreaming of. Instead of being stuck in wage slavery, there are ways you can get a little more creative to to get there instead of having to do like the traditional thing, like talking to people about like, uh, like our friend who is a fitness guy, he's hiring a salesperson. I'm like, why are you hiring a salesperson? <laughs> like, He doesn't even have his marketing down. So like it's an old system thinking when the system has changed. If you're thinking like businesses from the 90s, which maybe you may not be able to recognize, I recommend reading books on how to do these things because there are much smarter ways to get ahead now leveraging the power of the internet as like we're kind of trying to push right now anyway that's all i have to say
1: yes love it you you always come up with these great endings it it ties a nice bow on it love it and uh
0: (laughs) very good yeah so if you enjoyed this share it with somebody you know thank you for doing that for those who have we've been steadily growing getting a, a couple new subscribers on spotify every few days and the downloads from other platforms have been going up at a more steady rate as well. So it seems like we're, we're slowly getting there. So if you've been following us the whole time, thank you very much. And we will probably start doing a Patreon at some point because that seems to be the thing these days. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. You can check us out somewhere else. I have makeaskillcheck.com for, for d and stuff. And I, yeah, I'm mostly just working on that and this and Steve. And you can check out more of
1: my work at steverosephd.com. Uh, where I write articles on mental health
0: and addiction. Yep. All right. That was a nice, short and sweet. We should have put it at the beginning. Anyway, thanks yep. for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: I'm starting to record right now.
0: You're just starting now? Yeah. Say 420. 420. What about 420? 420. Yep. Yeah, there we go.